from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. That's right, baby, we're back! I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Saturday, the 5th of October, 2013. What? On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robot. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope biz. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I now do me a favor, favor. let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of... Oh my God, it's been like a million years since the last show. What's been going on? I got a new iPhone pod touch today because i got paid for doing my student teaching last year and it was man i should get paid because she graded all my papers and taught all my classes so obviously i deserve to get paid for that so anyway i can play guess the game now oh boy everyone's excited to hear me talk about that um oh we almost went to war with syria and trayvon martin's killer george zimmerman was found not guilty but really it's got a new hat if you saw the uh malibu stacy episode with lisa lionheart anyway yeah, the whole thing with Syria was a big kerfuffle, and, and every, I mean, you know, this is what's weird. Bill O'Reilly went on The Daily Show recently, and, and he said, if Obama said he's going to bomb Syria after they use chemical weapons, and he can't back down. Now, in a way, I kind of agree with that, because as a teacher, I know that if you tell a kid, you know, quit acting up, and then he keeps acting up, you have to take it to the next level. You can't say, like, if you act up again, I'm kicking you out of class, and then if he acts up again... You don't kick them out of class because then it's clear that your words have no meaning. But I so I think it was dumb for Obama to say, like, here's the red line. This is the red line. You know what ought to be the red line? International treaties that we've all agreed to. And then what's the red line? What does it mean if someone crosses the red line? That's for the U.N. Security Council to decide. Obama should not be. No president should be saying, like, well, we, the United States, won't allow this and that. The other thing. Yeah. Now, that said, I agree completely with John Stewart that it's idiotic to say that just because he said it, it, conditions change. John Kerry says, oh, Syria could get rid of all of its chemical weapons. And then as soon as it's clear that they want to do that, oh, Obama looks bad, Obama looks weak. Oh, shut up. And here's the thing. We talk about chemical weapons in the Middle East. Israel uses white phosphorus, and we don't mind at all. And I got a link to an article here from the BBC about Israel using white phosphorus, and we don't care. And, of course, the United States used white phosphorus in Fallujah, but that's okay because we're the good guys. Israel has purity of arms, and we were using white phosphorus against the terrorists, so it's okay. But, of course, Bashar al-Assad says he's using white phosphorus and other chemical weapons against terrorists. So, I don't, you know what, it's, we, we don't have the moral authority to say, here's what people should do in the Middle East. Uh, it should be a, a UN decision about what happens in the Middle East. And, and if we want to talk about what the U, because O'Reilly was on, uh, uh, John Stewart talking about, oh, if the UN says it's not okay, then it's not okay. Yeah, what about what the UN says about what Israel does is not okay? We don't ever hear about that. I'm not going to go on a big long thing about Syria because I'm probably going to talk about that for the virtual pizza that's coming up. But in the meantime, let's talk about Trayvon Martin. I, I'm, I'm, it's been seven years. Why are you bringing this up, Piotrowski? Because I haven't talked about it yet. Um, Trisha Rose was on Tavis Smiley right after the verdict, and she, her interview with him is really good. I'd love to play an excerpt, but I have no idea where to start it in terms of playing the most re- relevant part. So instead, I'll just put a link on my website, fbesp.org slash synapse, and uh, you can watch the whole interview because it's really important. Trisha Rose was probably the most important interview I saw after the uh, Zimmerman verdict. Speaking of horrible verdicts, uh, Bradley Manning got, excuse me, Chelsea Manning got 35 years and uh, comforted her lawyer, which I think is amazing that she's the one comforting her lawyer after this 35-year verdict. Uh, because Bradley Manning's a whistle, excuse me, Chelsea Manning, and for those who don't know, she's transitioning male to female, transgendered, yada, yada, yada. Someone went on uh, Smiley and West and they were like, how dare you be so transphobic and rah! And I was like, dude, it's Cornell West. Like, back up a little bit, you know? Okay, maybe he messed up by calling uh, Private Manning Bradley rather than Chelsea, but dude, 
we're all learning, you know, <sighs> whatever. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Chelsea Manning uh, should not have been sentenced to any time because she's a whistleblower and she deserves protection as a whistleblower, but whatever. Uh, there were a bunch of people with guns who did horrible things. This guy, Christopher Lane, he was an Australian like football player or something, and these three guys just came up and shot him because they were bored. They didn't have anything to do. Oh, God, it's so horrifying. And my heart obviously goes out to his family. I cannot imagine the grief and pain they're going through. And as as weird as it is to say, like I also feel horrible for the kids who did this terrible thing and what their families must be going through. They more or less ended their own lives on that day as well. As uh, Wackle says in Rudy Rucker's novel Spaceland, killing kills the killer. But, uh, yeah, that was horrible. And then Antoinette Tuff, this woman's awesome. There's this dude in Atlanta who came into this school uh, to shoot up the school. He was like, I haven't taken my meds. I have no reason to live. And she, like, talked him down. She came face-to-face with this gunman, and there's this amazing interview where she talks about how she told him about the things that were going on in her life, and uh, he basically sort of empathized with her, and she empathized with him, and it was this real moment of human connection, and she was able to get him to put the guns down and let the uh, cops come in and arrest him. So nobody got hurt as a result of it, and I think that's a really awesome thing because it shows that, first of all, the NRA's hullabaloo about the only person with a gun can stop, the only good person with a gun can stop, the best person with a gun. But here's this woman who didn't have a gun at all, and she got him to lay his gun down. So I think that's the best of all possible outcomes. Um, and then, so there's an action for this week. This week. It's lo- it's farcical to even call it a regular podcast, Piotrowski. I know. But the action I want you to do is uh, the Indonesian government ought to say sorry for 1965. And there's a petition on change.org that you can go to and sign up and demand that the president of Indonesia say uh, we're sorry for the um, horrible bloodshed that took place in 1965. So there's a link on that on my website. All right, let's talk about some current events. No wood on Salvador. Have you heard of Helen Thomas died, and that was sad. Uh, more recently, Tom Clancy died, and there was another famous person who died not long ago, but I don't remember who it was. I guess Chino Achebe died very recently. But uh, Helen Thomas is somebody who I really looked up to. I looked up to Chino Achebe as well. And if you want to learn about Chino Achebe's life, you should read the Wikipedia article about him because it's full of really good information. I wrote it, so what? Or most of it. you know, No one person writes anything on Wikipedia, blah, blah, blah. However, Helen Thomas was an amazing journalist, and uh, the the obituary on ABC News said she was persistent to the point of badgering. One White House press secretary described her questioning as, quote, torture, and he was one of her fans. So that goes to show that she was, you know, if you watch Newsroom, which is a good show, an Alan Sorkin show about this group of journalists who really want to do like a good news program, not just, you know, repeating talking points and stuff. Well, that's what Helen Thomas was. She was a really good journalist and she didn't take no for an answer. And uh, she didn't just write down whatever a press secretary told her to write down. She kept at it and, and persisted in order to get the truth for the American people. And that's an awesome thing. And not enough journalists do that. In Cameroon, a gay rights activist was found tortured and killed. Uh, This is a news article from The Guardian. A prominent gay rights activist in Cameroon has been found tortured and killed in his home amid claims the authorities have systematically ignored similar attacks in the country. Uh, This person named Lamembe was well known as a gay rights activist as head of CAMFADES, which campaigned for AIDS sufferers in the Central African country. Under the law in Cameroon, like many other countries on the continent, homosexuality is illegal and punishable by up to five years imprisonment. Lamembe's killing follows several attacks on the offices of human rights defenders in Cameroon, including those working for gay rights. In his last blog post before he died, Lamembe, who recently contributed to a 55-page report on the prosecutions of gay people in Cameroon, described attacks on gay and lesbian groups and criticized the lack of action by the authorities to investigate and prosecute the perpetrators. A 2013 Amnesty International report on hatred of homosexuals in Africa also documents the stigma constantly following gay men and uh, lesbian women on the continent. Quote, I know friends, gays and lesbians who attempted suicide. My friends call me and say I cannot go on, and I need to comfort them. The most dangerous is the rejection by the family. When you are cut off from any financial support, you get depressed and suicidal. 
one worker told Amnesty International. In Pakistan, uh, a senior figure in the Pakistan Taliban has written an extraordinary letter to Malala Yousafzai setting out the reasons why she was shot, coming close to expressing regret. In the latest letter, first passed to a local journalist, Rashid insisted Malala was not shot because of her campaign for education. Quote, the Taliban believe that you were intentionally writing against them and running a smearing campaign to malign their efforts to establish an Islamic system in the Swat Valley, and your writings were provocative, he wrote. Later on in the article, he also asked whether Malala would have see, received as much attention if she had been hurt in a CIA drone strike. Now, uh, don't get me wrong, I have no sympathy for the Pakistan Taliban. I'm opposed to what they do, and I think it's disgusting. But I also think it's important that we um, we hear what they have to say and, and recognize that if they're not speaking out, if they didn't shoot her because of her campaign for education, that's an important piece of information. I don't know if I believe that because I don't know that the Pakistan Taliban has been uh, established their credibility as a group that we can believe that they do what they say. But that's not a battle for me to fight. That's a battle for the Burqa Avenger to fight. This is a real thing. The Guardian had this awesome article. And uh, the Burqa Avenger is the master of talked is a master of, of talked kabaddi, a, ma- a martial art that uses books and pens to defeat her enemies. And they have this interview with the creator. You mean figuratively? She beats her foes with intelligence? Answer, no, she literally just clonks them around the head with books and pens. Question, is this a Batman thing? Was Burka Avenger traumatized by a flock of books in a cave as a baby? Answer, no, nor was she bitten by a radioactive book in a science lab, you dolt. Science lab. Books and pens are her weapons because she's a teacher who wants to emphasize the importance of studying in her native South Asia. So that's really awesome. They got a video with the theme song for Burka Avenger. It's really awesome. Uh, don't mess with the lady in black. The lady in black. I suppose I should see if I can find the actual video rather than just singing it myself. Yeah, here it is. Camouflage shadows and darkness. No guns, but God ammo regardless. A backpack, so she's coming prepared to leave the opposition in submission. Rather than fear. Yeah, superhero got him kicking and screaming. In hysterics, these barracks had envisioned the demon. A spirit so quick to deliver a beating to the enemies of peace, love, logic, and reason. Hit him with a logical reason. So I was surprised because I expected the video to be a little weaker than that, but it's pretty funky. Check out BurkaAvenger.com. The first episode is apparently available for free on the website, and uh, it's for kids. So, you know, check it out. It's pretty funky. Um, Bone Marrow, quote, frees men of HIV drugs. This is an article from the BBC, and I'm, I'm always fascinated when I hear about advances in fighting HIV AIDS. Two patients have been taken off their HIV drugs after bone marrow transplants seem to clear the virus from their bodies, doctors report. One of the patients has spent nearly four months without taking medication with no sign of the virus returning. The two men who have not been identified had lived with HIV for about 30 years. They both developed a cancer lymphoma, which required a bone marrow transplant. After the transplant, there was no detectable HIV in the blood for two years in one patient and four in the other. Dr. Timothy Henrik told the BBC the results were exciting, but he added, quote, we have not demonstrated cure. We're going to need longer follow-up. What we can say is the vir- if the virus does stay away for a year or even two years after we stop the treatment, the chances of the virus rebounding are going to be extremely low. It's much too early at this point to use the C word, cure. End quote. All right, let's talk a little bit about fracking. There's been some news. EPA's abandoned Wyoming study about fracking, one retreat of many. This is a comprehensive history of EPA investigations of fracking and pollution. And a lot of times the EPA goes to investigate something and then they abandon the investigation. While the Environmental Protection Agency abruptly retreated on its multi-million dollar investigation into water contamination in a central Wyoming natural gas field last month, it shocked environmentalists and energy industry supporters alike. In 2011, the agency had issued a blockbuster draft report. It's a blockbuster. Ah, dude, I gotta check out that new EPA report. Check it out. You gonna go see the new Avengers movie? No way, we're gonna go read the EPA blockbuster report. Saying that the controversial practice of fracking was to blame for the 
pollution of an aquifer deep below the town of Pavilion, Wyoming, the first time such a claim had been based on a scientific analysis. The study drew heated criticism over its methodology and awaited a peer review that promised to settle the dispute. Now the EPA will instead hand the study over to the state of Wyoming, whose research will be funded by Ancana, the very drilling company whose wells may have caused the contamination. Sure, that'll be an objective analysis. <laughs> Environmentalists see an agency that is systematically disengaging from any research that could be perceived as questioning the safety of fracking or oil drilling, even as President Obama lays out a plan to combat climate change that rests heavily on the use of natural gas. Quote, we're seeing a pattern that is of great concern, said Amy Mall, a senior policy analyst for the Natural Resources Defense Council in Washington. They need to make sure that scientific investigations are thorough enough to ensure the public is getting a full scientific explanation. End quote. Out of the article... This is the same sort of thing that, in a way, Newsroom is sort of fighting against, because the, the idea is that everybody's scared. Okay, the right-wing corporations and, and the Tea Party and, and these multi-billion dollar forces, and the evolution debate is a good example of this, too. They can all pretend like, well, you know, if you don't give us a fair hearing in your analysis, then you're being politically biased. And so, you know, if you want to present the question of where humans came from, well, you have to pretend like all the evidence is split between evolution and creationism. But, of course, it's not. So we shouldn't even mention creationism because that is a fringe theory supported by 4% of the world's people and less than 1% of the world's scientists. So... The, the same thing is happening with these fracking reports. The EPA is horrified of, you know, if they look like they're coming out against fracking, then the, the politicians in Congress who are from pro-fracking, you know, perspectives can say, oh, the EPA is biased and we're going to defund them because they're political. But they're not political. They're just looking at the facts and the facts say fracking is messed up and it should not be going on. All right, let me read some more from the article. Breathe, Piotrowski, breathe. It's hard, man, it's hard. The agency has maintained publicly that it remains committed to an ongoing national study of hydraulic fracturing, which it says will draw the definitive line on fracking ri fracking's risks to water. In private conversations, however, high-ranking agency officials acknowledge that fierce pressure from the drilling industry and its powerful allies on Capitol Hill, as well as financial constraints and a delicate policy balance sought by the White House, is squelching their ability to scrutinize not only the effects of oil and gas drilling, but other environmental protections as well. In other fracking news, uh, children given lifelong ban on talking about fracking. Now, this is old news, so some of you have probably heard about this. Two young children in Pennsylvania were banned from talking about fracking for the rest of their lives under a gag order imposed under a settlement reached by their parents with the leading oil and gas company. The sweeping gag order was imposed under a $750,000 settlement between the Hallowich family and Range Resources Corporation, a leading oil and gas driller. It provoked outrage on Monday among environmental campaigners and free speech advocates. Gag orders on adults are typical in settlements reached between oil and gas operators and residents in the heart of shale gas boom in Pennsylvania. Out of the article. So what this means is if people agree to let these companies frack on their territory and then the aquifer gets all messed up and they light their water on fire like we saw in the documentary film uh, Gasland, and these people don't want to drink gas water for the rest of their lives, the company might be willing to pay them a settlement, but it means they can't talk about their, oil, a gas being, their water being contaminated by gas for the rest of their lives. So all these families that would be able to tell the rest of us, hey, don't let fracking happen, they're not allowed to. If they want to see any money for the contamination, they have to agree to a gag order. It's completely bogus. Uh, back to the article. The company's lawyer's insistence on extending the lifetime gag order to the Hallowitch's children gave even the judge pause, according to the court documents. <sighs> now, a more recent article, this is very interesting, and this is all over the news, this is from USA Today. Fracking linked to radioactive river water in Pennsylvania. Ding, 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 ding. River water in western Pennsylvania has elevated levels of radioactivity, some of it from fluids discharged after natural gas extraction, says a Duke University study today. Radium levels were about 200 times greater in sediment from a creek where wastewater was discharged from a treatment plant than in sediment upstream, according to the peer-reviewed study in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal. The amount exceeded thresholds for safe disposal of radioactive waste. Quote, we were surprised by, surprised by the magnitude of radioactivity, says co-author Avner Vengosh. Avner Vengosh. Welcome, I'm Avner Vengosh, and I'm here to tell you about the 
levels of dangerous fluids in your water. You sound like a bad imitation of Jeremy Irons. I am not. I am Avner Vengosh. That's very different from Jeremy Irons. I am a geochemistry professor at Duke's Nicholas School of the Environment. It's named after Nicholas, or rather Petit Nicolas, from the French series by uh, Sampe. And you should read those books because they're quite charming. I'm Avner Vengosh. Uh, quote, it's unusual to find this level, he says, urging that other sites be investigated and that such water not be discharged. What a notion. And anybody who says, if you know somebody or you're about to come at me with, well, fracking's not really all that dangerous because it's actually pretty safe. I'll tell you what, go to Pennsylvania, go to this area where the water was collected and drink a big glass of this water and then tell me that it's safe. And if you're not willing to do it, then shut up. All right, a teenager died after being tasered in Miami. The joke's about, don't tase me, bro. Everyone makes fun of that guy because he was an idiot. But this it's not so funny when it happens like this. At 5.14 a.m., this is from the statement from the chief of police, Raymond Martinez. On, at 5.14 a.m. on August 6, 2013, Miami Beach police officers observed a subject vandalizing private property, parenthesis, graffiti. Thanks for letting me know. On 71st Street and Collins Avenue, as officers approached, the subject fled the scene, ensuing a foot pursuit by officers. During the foot pursuit, the subject encountered officers face-to-face at 71st and Harding Avenue and ignored officers' commands to stop. In order to effect his arrest, wrong form of effect, an officer deployed his conducted electrical weapon, taser. The subject was placed into custody. Once in custody, the subject displayed signs of medical duress. Miami Beach Fire Rescue responded to the scene and transported the subject to Mount Sinai Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. The subject has been identified as Israel Hernandez. Why did they taser him? Because he was graffitiing? Really? That's worth a tasering? See, this is that bollocks, because people say... Oh, a taser's better than using a real bullet. And, okay, there's something to be said for that, unless you can't figure out which which is your taser and which is your live ammunition gun officer who killed Oscar Grant. But but then it becomes this thing of like, oh, well, that guy's getting away after having stolen a dollar from this other dude. I better taser him. Because the idea is, well, it's non-lethal. Well, obviously it's not non-lethal sometimes. And so police officers get to just taser whoever they want And if it means the guy dies, well, he probably had a pre-existing condition. You shouldn't get in the way of my taser gun if you have a pre-existing condition. That could be part of Obamacare. Rand Paul had a thing about the uh, Republican Party. I think this is great. I'm going to attempt over the next year. This is a quote from Rand Paul. I don't even know where. This is from Business Week. I'm going to attempt over the next year or so to expand my appeal to people I call the not-yet-haves. Not the have-nots, but the not-yet-haves. To show them we are the party of opportunity. Now, on the one hand, it's great for him to recognize there are people who don't have a whole lot of money. But it's amazing that he's talking about them as not-yet-haves. You're not yet haves, as if it's inevitable that someday you'll you'll be one of the haves, not that you're going to live most of your life as a have-not, because that might make you class conscious. No, instead we want you to suffer under this delusion that someday you're going to be a millionaire, you're going to get on fame or shame, or America's got something, and then you're going to be a star, and you're going to get rich. And finally, thanks to Duff Stuff for this piece called The Fifth Estate. This is a movie that's coming out about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Uh, IMB description says, A look at the relationship between WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and his early supporter and eventual colleague Daniel Dornshine Burke and how the website's growth and influence led to an irreparable rift between the two friends. It kind of sounds like, uh, what do you call it, the social network, but... I don't know. We'll see. And Julian Assange gave a response. There's a YouTube link I'll put on the website. And it's all, he's like, this is clear. This is clear. Every time Julian Assange talks, it's like he's had vocal cords removed or something. Because every time he talks, he always talks very, very quietly. He's very, very quiet. He's very, very tight. Speak up, Julian. Come on. I thought you were trying to awake the masses. But, uh, he, uh, yeah, so it was a thing where he talked about, oh, this movie is more of a smear campaign and it's a way for Hollywood to discredit him and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the truth's always somewhere in the middle. And I don't believe that Hollywood's going to do an accurate job of sort of reporting the way that Julian Assange's life unfolded. But for him to act like, well, this is the government's attempt to murder my image and blah, blah, just shut up. Let's talk about some economics. If the thing would ever play... 
Here, play this. I love Elizabeth Warren. She's so freaking awesome. Let me play you a clip from CNBC. All right, so CNBC has this program called the Squawk Box. And every time I hear that, I think about on uh, 30 Rock when they had sports shouting. Ah! I could probably find a clip of that, too. Here we go, 30 seconds about sports shouting. Oh, yeah, he's the guy that produces that dumb sports show that always beats us. Yeah, you're talking about sports shouting. Okay, let's meet with him. You know him? Hell, yeah, I'm a frequent guest on sports shouting. That's what Squawk Box is, only not satire. So they had Elizabeth Warren on, and they thought they were going to bamboozle her, but they didn't. So I'll just play the first part of this. A measure to break up the megabanks. Joining us now is Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um, I always used to call you professor. I don't. If I called you professor, is there anyone else in the Senate that was a professor? There isn't, is there? I don't think so. You want me I to call you so. professor, senator, or senator, professor? Uh, sen- Senator's fine. Mr. Senator's manager. Good. Now, I'm Just not going to say that because you used to come on Squawk Box all the time that, that we <laughs> vaulted you into your current uh, position. But obviously it didn't hurt. But, but I'm Shut getting, up and get I'm to the questions, you moron. We didn't make you, Senator, right? I mean, you did this on your own. But, but there was that squat box bump. Well, that's that, what I'm talking about. You listen, to, listen to how I'm going to lead this into what we talk about. Okay. At the same time, just because Glass-Steagall was repealed in 1999 doesn't necessarily mean that that, that act, GLBA, had anything to do with causing the crisis, Right. Right. Right? I'll give you that. Okay. Because the problem started a whole lot earlier. Okay. You want to go through the history of this? So, you remember Great Depression, 1933, one of the solutions was to say we're going to separate ordinary, boring banking, checking account, savings accounts from all the other kinds, investments, the high risk. Listen to what she knows what she's talking about. You just can't do them in the same institution. Okay, fine. So, built a big wall between the two. But let's face it. The banks wanted access to the high profits you get from doing that trading, and the traders wanted access to those deposits. So they kept hammering on Washington That's to right. change it, and the regulators started changing it in the 1980s. Because you need me commenting on top of creating loopholes in the old Glass-Steagall Act. So that finally, in 1999, Congress got rid of the whole thing. But it was a shell by then. And so what happened? We have the big crash in 2008. What does everyone, including folks on Squat Box, say about it? They say too much concentration in financial services creates too big to fail, puts us at bigger risk. And what's happened since 2008? The four biggest financial institutions are now 30% bigger. They're too than bigger they were to fail. Now. We're talking, so this is all apples and oranges, though. Every one of the banks, the ones that were involved, Bear Stearns, Lehman, Merrill Lynch, Countrywide, WAMU, IndyMac, AIG, none of those are the companies that you're talking about here. And in fact, the companies that you're talking about are the ones that were able to help absorb the problems that we had. Oh. And the Bank of America, and what would we have done if Bank of America didn't absorb Countrywide and Merrill? If JP Morgan hadn't absorbed Bear Stearns? Uh, in WAMU, if Wells Fargo hadn't helped us with, with Wachovia, we'd be worse off. So let's just unpack that just a little bit okay. and look at the pieces we've got here. She's so calm Remember and cool. that what this is about is whether or not the people who want to do the big trading should be able to get access to deposits, right? And that's part of what drove TARP and what drove our bailout was the fact that we had the depository institutions were also at risk. But that was Remember, from their normal lending. A lot of that was from just the, you know, the, the, the subprime bubble and the housing oh, bubble I'm sorry. and commercial loans. Oh, and- I'm sorry. Yes, it was about their mortgages, but it was also about the kinds of instruments they were trading in. Which were and packaged how they by the, which were packaged by the non-financial holding. And but, how they loaded up on risk. But, but, but at the end... At the end of the day, there is no single magic bullet that's going to stop too big to fail. That's part of what we've learned. There's a lot that's going on there. But the central premise behind a 21st century Glass-Steagall is to say, if you want to get out there and take risks, go and do it. 
But what you can't do is you can't get access to FDIC insured deposits when you do. See, so I, I could play the whole thing. I would love to sit and listen to it all, but I know not everybody is excited about Elizabeth Warren as I am. You should watch the whole interview because she's awesome. She's so awesome. She's so right. We totally need that 21st century Glass-Steagall again, and so you should call your congressional representatives and demand that they institute it and pound on your desk when you do. And you could call up Avner Vengosh. I'm Avner Vengosh, and I insist on a... Hello, this is my congressman. I insist on a 21st century Glass-Steagall. Now, please. Detroit files for bankruptcy. I don't even know why I have this in my... Oh, yeah, I know why. Because it makes me angry. The filing, for, which has brought implications for the nation's municipal bond market and the sanctity of public pension funds, was met with outrage, disappointment, and a vow to fight. Some creditors adopted a war stance, threatening a prolonged battle. Others accused emergency manager Kevin Orr for failing to negotiate in good faith, blah, 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 blah. During a month of negotiations, Orr has reached a settlement with only two creditors, Bank of America and UBS AG. They have agreed to accept 75 cents on the dollar for approximately $340 million in swaps liabilities, according to a source familiar with the deal. And they deserve it because Bank of America really doesn't have a lot of money, so they need 75 cents on the dollar. Meanwhile, Orr proposed paying most of the money owed to secured creditors, while pension funds, unions, and unsecured bondholders would receive in some cases as little as 10 cents on the dollar. So old people who work for GM, who are trying to not eat dog food during their retirement years, they deserve 10 cents on the dollar. But Bank of America gets 75 cents on the dollar. That's American economics, economics, I don't even know how to say it. Avner Vengosh, how do you say it? You pronounce it economics. Thank you, Avner. Uh, it's an evening with Havner Vengosh. Uh, stronger labor law in Bangladesh. Hallelujah. All right, so you may recall that a factory collapsed in Bangladesh and hundreds of workers were killed and it was a catastrophe because they knew it was about to collapse and the bosses said, get in there and get to work. And the people went, oh, we don't want to, we're going to die. And they did. And as a result, hallelujah, a stronger labor law was instituted in Bangladesh. Uh, unfortunately, not everything is as beautiful as it seems. Bangladesh approved Monday a labor law to boost worker rights, including the freedom to form trade unions, finally. After a factory co building collapse in April killed 1,132 garment workers and sparked debate over labor safety and rights, the legislation puts into place provisions including a central fund to improve living standards of workers, a, re a requirement for 5% of annual profits to be deposited in employee welfare funds, and an assurance that union members will not be transferred to another factory of the same owner after labor unrest. The government is in talks with labor groups and factory owners on a new minimum wage for the garment sector. Its current $38 per month minimum pay is half of what can Cambodian garment workers earn. Bangladesh last increased its minimum garment worker pay in late 2010, almost doubling the lowest pay. This time, wages are unlikely to go much higher as factory owners who oppose the raise say they cannot afford higher salaries as Western retailers are used to buying cheap clothing. Ding, 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 ding. This matters what Walmart thinks. The reason that labor conditions in Bangladesh suck so bad is because Walmart does not say, we would really prefer to have this shirt cost $10. Walmart says, if this shirt doesn't cost $10, then you're, we're going to someone else. And the people who make the shirts go, okay, I guess we'll make a factory in Bangladesh. They will let us pay their workers nothing and have the factory built out of toothpicks and duct tape. And the Walmart goes, that's right. And, and now, Bangladesh, here's the thing. The factory owners in Bangladesh are going to say, look, Walmart, we have to charge $11 for this shirt because we have to pay these people a living wage. And Walmart's going to go, nope, we're going to someone else, go to hell. And they're going to pull out their orders and the factory owner suddenly will have nowhere to send their $11 shirts. And Walmart will go, who's willing to buy, make a shirt for $10? And they go, I mean, and $10, $1. And then Walmart sells it for $10 because Walmart's making all the profit here. How do you think the Walton family's so rich? Whatever. Hajun Chang wrote a really good piece about corporations, complexity, and crime in The Guardian. Uh, I'll read an excerpt from it. Welcome to... Oh, Hajun Chang is the most awesome dude ever. He wrote a book called 32 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. You should totally read it. Welcome to the age of irresponsibility. The largest companies today are so complex that top managers are not even expected to know fully what is going on in them. These companies have also increasingly outsourced activities to multiple layers of subcontractors in supply chains crisscrossing the globe. Increasing complexity not only lowers the quality of decisions as it creates an information overload, but it makes it more difficult to pin down responsibilities. The multiple suicides of workers in Foxconn factories in China have revealed Victorian labor conditions down the supply chains for the most futuristic Apple products. And I, I don't want to pretend like I'm castigating people for buying stuff. I just bought an Apple iPod Touch today. I'm part of the problem. I recognize it. 
But the top managers of Apple escaped blame because these deaths happened in factories in another country, China, owned by a company from yet another country, Hanhai, the Taiwanese multinational. The result is an economic system in which no one is responsible in responsible positions takes any serious responsibility. Unless radical action is taken, we will see many more financial crises and corporate scandals in the years to come. The first thing we need is to modernize our sense of crime and punishment. Most of us still instinctively subscribe to the primeval notion of crime as a direct physical act, killing someone, stealing silver. But in the modern economy, with a complex division of labor, indirect non-physical acts can also seriously harm people. If misbehaving financiers and incompetent regulators cause an economic crisis, they can indirectly kill people by subjecting them to unemployment-related stress and by reducing public health expenditure, as shown by books like The Body Politic. I have no idea what that book is, but if Ha Jun Cheng's recommending it, you probably ought to read it. I probably ought to read it. We need to accept the seriousness of these long-distance crimes and strengthen punishments for them. After, uh, out of the article, after all, if Osama bin Laden can be responsible for 9-11, then the CEO of Walmart can be responsible for the deaths of the suicides of workers in Foxconn, right? And Apple and, and other companies can be responsible too. Back to the article. More importantly, we need to simplify our economic system so that responsibilities are easier to determine. This is not to say we have to go back to the days of small workshops owned by a single capitalist. Increased complexity is inevitable if we are to increase productivity. However, much of the recent rise in complexity has been designed to make money for certain people at the cost of social productivity. Such socially unproductive complexity needs to be reduced. Financial derivatives are the most obvious examples, given their potential to exponentially increase the complexity of the financial system, and thus the degree of irresponsibility within it. We should only allow such products when their creators can prove their productivity and safety, similar to how the drug approval process works. I'm Avner Vangosh, and I agree with that statement. Thank you, Avner. Democracy Now! had uh, the... Uh, author of a book or maker of a documentary, oh no, author of a book, uh, named Laura Gottsdiener, Gottsdiener, uh, author of A Dream Foreclosed, Black America and the Fight for a Place to Call Home. And I'd love to play audio, but it would take me forever to find this excerpt, so I'll just read it. What we're talking about when we talk about housing recovery is we're talking about the rising prices of houses. We're not talking about a stabilization of the lives of families who have been evicted. We're not talking about an end of foreclosures. Tens of thousands of foreclosures are still happening every single month across the country. I'm Avna Vengosh, and I'm outraged by that. Continue with the quote, please, Mr. Pietrowski. I shall. Thank you, Abner. Um, what we're really talking about, honestly, is large private equity companies, including Blackstone Group, one of the largest private equity companies in the world, making it a point now, making it a policy to go in and buying huge tracts of land... <clears throat> insert Monty Python reference, with foreclosed houses. They've spent billions of dollars in the last two years buying up hundreds of thousands of foreclosed houses. We don't know what they're going to do with them, but I know that that doesn't signify to me a human housing recovery. That signifies to me a Wall Street housing recovery. Amen, uh, Laura Gotzendainer. Preach it. Yes, I'm Avner Vengosh, and I also want you to preach it. Uh, McDonald's tells workers to get a second job and turn off the heat. You've probably heard about that, so I'm going to skip it. I'll put the link in the uh, website. But uh, Debt ceiling brink has high-speed traders drooling. Oh, yeah, it's time for some high-frequency trading news. What, 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 what? It's like on uh, when, when uh, Wyatt Cenac did the, the uh, GOP chairman dude. I don't remember his name. Uh, whoop, whoop. It's in my tummy, big dummy. Uh, shalom that. All right. Uh, debt ceiling prank has speed traders drooling. While investors are still yawning over another case of Congress turning a basic responsibility into a protracted hostage negotiation. Excuse me, Business Week. Avner, tell them. Let me take this one, Piotrowski. It's not Congress not doing their job. It's the Republicans in Congress taking hostages. Let's be clear about this, please, shall we? Thank you, Avner. Uh, the closer we get to a default, the more panicky markets will get. There are lots of ways investors can try to take advantage of market chaos using options and buying inverse indexes, for example. I have no idea what that means. Abner, do you know? I have no idea either. Thank you, Abner. But there's one surefire way to make money when things get hairy. Speed. No one likes government-orchestrated chaos like high-frequency traders do. Abner, would you read that last sentence again? Because I think it bears special scrutiny. It would be my pleasure. No one likes government-orchestrated chaos like high-frequency traders do. Thank you, Avner Vengosh. You're welcome, Mr. Piotrowski. The market is now a placid, shallow pool in which speed traders are drowning. Okay, 
So I've reported on this before. The high speed free, high frequency traders, um, they talk about how they add stability to the market. In a way, they may have added all the stability they can, which means they may have made themselves useless in terms of generating profit. So how are they going to generate profit now? Well, one way they can do it is with the chaos in Washington. Judging by Congress's inability to avert a government shutdown, chances seem pretty good we're in for another protracted fight over the debt ceiling. Quote, the longer they run out the clock, the more it benefits the, benefits the high-frequency trading community, says Dave Weiss, senior market analyst at AIT Group. I swear to God, that's what it's called. A-I-T-E. How would you pronounce that? How's, how are things going at your job, Dave Weiss? They're AIT. <laughs> And this time, high-frequency traders are extra hungry. Quote, it's like a binge trading for them, says someone named Sussman. you got to trade all you can, especially when you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. So the one thing insane robots need is the insanity of not knowing where their next meal is going to come from. So now that's that's what's on the table. And finally, some good news about economics. Russian man turns tables on credit card contract. This is awesome. Uh, let's see, where is this coming from? From the Telegraph. When Dmitry Argarkov, Dmitry Argarkov, well, I'm Dmitry Argarkov, you have a question about my incident? I'll tell you all about it. When he was sent a letter offering him a credit card, he found the rates not to his liking, but he didn't throw the contract away or shred it. Instead, the 42-year-old from Voronezh, Russia, scanned it into his computer, altered the terms, and sent it back to Tinkoff Credit Systems. Tinkoff apparently failed to read the amendments, signed the contract, and sent Mr. Argakov a credit card. Tinkoff attempted to close the account due to overdue payments. It sued Mr. Argakov for 45,000 rubles for fees and charged that... Uh, the uh, charged that charges that were not in his altered version of the contract. Earlier this week, a Russian judge ruled in Mr. Argakov's favor. Tinkoff had signed the contract and was legally bound to it. Mr. Argakov was only ordered to pay an outstanding balance of 19,000 rubles, 371 pounds. Quote, they signed the documents without looking. They said what usually their borrowers say in court. We hadn't read it, said Mr. Mikhailovich. But now Mr. Argakov has taken matters one step further. He is suing Tinkoff for 24 million rubles for not honoring the contract and breaking the agreement. Oleg Tinkoff, founder of the bank, tweeted, he tweeted, I love this, quote, Our lawyers think he's going to get not 24 million, but really four years in prison for fraud. Now it's a matter of principle for TCS Bank Twitter. Yeah, but when your customers don't read the fine print, then you get to win the court case. Now you want to say that he's committing fraud? Are you kidding me? You lying scumbags! How could you? I love that man. I wish that Dmitry Argakov could run for president of the United States. What do you think about it, Dmitry? I cannot run. I'm not an American citizen. But you're a really cool dude. Thank you for saying so. Don't you need to move on and talk about education? Yes, I do. Let's go ahead and do that now. Chicago's closing schools, and who's it hurting? It's not hurting Rahm Emanuel. Let me tell you that. Tell it, Karen Lewis. Tell it, new teacher from Chicago who I don't know if she wants me saying her name on this podcast. Uh, uh, this is an article. It's really good. You should read the whole thing. It's got a lot of good links. It's from pdkintl.org. I don't know what that is. According to two different studies, one by Philadelphia's Research for Action and another by Chicago's Consortium for School Research, there is little evidence to show that school closings would improve education for children, both finding it's unlikely that schools attending the closing schools would attend schools any better than the ones they had attended. Moreover, school closings may not even save money. An audit of school closings in Washington, D.C. schools showed closures costing rather than saving the district money. I'm Avner Vengosh, and I'm outraged by that. I also wish to point out... Go ahead, Avner. Thank you. I wish to point out that when schools close in neighborhoods in Chicago that are known for gang violence, sometimes students have to cross gang lines they would not previously have had to cross. This may not in actually raise the degree of violence, but it certainly increases the amount of tension that's being generated. And there's signs up saying, if you're from such and such a neighborhood, you better not cross to our neighborhood, because the way gangs tend to organize themselves is according to neighborhood. And if you suddenly have a bunch of people crossing through your neighborhood that are members of other neighborhood cliques or sets, then it becomes a more tense situation. So if for no other reason, they should not close schools because it means more gang tension. 
Thank you, Abner, for pointing that out. Um, New York Principal of the Year, Carol Burris. I wonder if she's related to Her- Hannibal Burris. Uh, probably not. It looks like they spell their names differently. Thank you, Abner Vengosh. Um, New York Principal of the Year, Carol Burris, respo- responds to Common Core test results. Burris was named New York's 2013 High School Principal of the Year by the School Administrators Association of New York and the National Association of Secondary School Principals and in 2010 tapped as the 2010 New York State Outstanding Educator by the School Administrators Association of New York State. Um, and I should point out, too, that Wisconsin's right in the middle of this thing where Scott Walker's like, eh, Common Core's not rigorous enough. We need, we need higher standards for Wisconsin. You know what that would do? It would make Common Core not common. Now, I got problems with Common Core standards, and I think it's weird that me and the Tea Party see eye to eye on this whole Common Core thing, but for Scott Walker to respond by saying, oh, yeah, we're going to make the standards even more, which is pretty much verbatim what he said, I couldn't think of the next word in that thing. We want to make the common, our Wisconsin standards even higher than the Common Core. Yeah, we had Wisconsin State standards 10 years ago. Then five years ago, we said we're going to get rid of those in favor of the Common Core. And now we're saying we're going to get rid of those for new Wisconsin State standards. And I can't wait to see how different they are from the old Wisconsin State standards. <sighs> Anyway, here's what Hannibal Carroll Burris said. Young students in New York State who are developing as they should will be placed in remedial services, foregoing enrichment in the arts because they are a two and thus below the new proficiency level. That is where the vast majority of students fall on the new scales, below proficiency and off the road to college readiness. That quote is his, road to college readiness is in quotes. Students who in reality may not need support will be sorted into special education or, quote, response to intervention services. Parents will worry for their children's future. The newspapers will bash the public schools and their teachers at a time when morale is already at an extreme low. The optimism teachers first felt about the Common Core state standards is fading as the standards and their tests roll into classrooms. Because of the Common Core, our youngest children are being asked to meet unrealistic expectations. New York's model curriculum for first graders includes knowing the meaning of words that include cuneiform, sarcophagus, and ziggurat. Anybody who's listening to this, you tell me what a ziggurat is without looking it up, and we'll talk about whether or not first graders ought to know that or fail a standardized test. I'm Avenue Vengosh, and I think that's outrageous. I don't even know what a ziggurat is. Maybe I could look it up. Kindergartners are expected to meet expectations that have led some early childhood experts to worry that the Common Core standards may cause young children harm. If we are not careful, and he's got links to all these things, the young children harm leads to a Washington Post article about it. If we are not careful, the development of social skills, the refinement of fine motor skills, and most importantly, the opportunity to celebrate the talents and experiences of every child will be squeezed out of the school day. Amen to that, dude, because that's already happening. You see in middle school and high school, never mind about helping kids become creative and thinking for themselves and learning about their lives and investigating the world in a real way. Do you know how to do this thing for the test? Uh, New York's new cut scores are an attempt to benchmark state scores to the proficiency rates attached to the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, NAEP. Yet the connections between NAEP scores and college performance are so spurious that researchers have yet to claim that NAEP scores have any predictive value at all when it comes to college and career readiness. The bottom line is there are tremendous financial interests driving the agenda about our schools, from test makers to publishers to data management corporations, all making tremendous profits from the chaotic change. When the scores drop, they prosper. When tests change, they prosper. When schools scramble to buy materials to raise scores, they prosper. This is not like Diane Ravitch complaining about this, although she has a new book about how much she hates this stuff. But the, the whole thing is like, this is, this is Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, New York Principal of the Year saying that this is all a scam to raise money for these companies that data management and test makers and publishers. I'm not that cynical. I think there are some people who are pushing Common Core and, and these other reforms that actually want to see things better for kids. But that doesn't mean they're right. And they're not. They're wrong. Um, and we sh- But we should also not be naive. There are people who benefit from this stuff. Uh, meanwhile, Jeb Bush's educational record is becoming a liability. He was the one who said, oh, we're going to have high standards. And now it's becoming clear that, you know, people don't like the Common Core and, and all of this stuff. Uh, and, and, and all of his miraculous changes that Jeb Bush achieved in Florida are now turning out to be based on hooey. Last year, alarmed that so many Florida school students failed a new writing exam, the State Board of Education quickly lowered the passing score to boost more kids over the bar. What a shock! We see these new 
new standards coming into place, everybody fails them, and then everyone goes, oh, well, we'll fiddle with the numbers to make it look like people are doing better than they are. And this happens over and over. I'm about to tell you about when it happened in Indiana. Texas, of all states, this spring slashed the number of standardized tests required for high school graduation from 15 to 5, amid deep unease with the emphasis on high-stakes testing promoted by Jeb Bush and his brother, former president and Texas governor George W. Bush. <sighs> all right, so speaking of Indiana, there, there's this new thing, Indiana won't change school grades. The previous superintendent fiddled with the numbers in order to make it look like more people were passing than they really did. Former superintendent Tony Bennett Hey, good to see you. Not that, Tony Bennett. A Republican made a pair of sweeping changes in the formula that carried the Crystal House Charter School from a C to an A. He removed a limit on bonus points and changed how so-called combined schools were scored. Out of the article. It's like in Quiz Show where the dude, uh, Martin Scorsese's character is like, I don't know, call it a bonus round. Just get him back on the air. You, they fiddle with the numbers any way they want to in order to make it look like their reforms are actually working. When in reality, they probably aren't. And so w they don't want to admit it and they don't want to take a long hard look at the actual scope of the problem so they fiddle with the numbers i'm going to start calling this the education number fiddling report i'm avner vengosh and i agree with that new plan go for it piotrowski thank you avner each change affected multiple schools but crystal house was the only school to benefit from both bennett resigned as florida's school's chief in august a few days after the associated press published emails uncovering his changes to the formula bennett has maintained he did nothing wrong and finally <sighs> Slate has a thing about parents left behind. This is a really good article, and it's all about how confused this person is when they go to learn about what's going on in their kids' schools. Education is a complicated enterprise and requires hard work on the part of parents and students alike. But somewhere along the line, public education became so completely overmastered by its own jargon, broad templates, and unspecified testable outcomes that at times yesterday I felt as if I were toggling between a business school seminar and the space program. Acronyms alone, seemingly random sequences of letters like MAP and SOL and EAPE were being deployed more frequently than actual words. To be sure, the teachers seemed as maddened by it as the parents were. Even if we can all agree about the singular benefits of project-based learning across the curriculum, I am less than perfectly certain any of us even knows what that means. Amen, sister. Tell it. I'm pretty sure it was a sister. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The Those humans, humans are, are dead. dead. Sing it, Abner. Those humans are dead. They look like they're, they look dead. Like they're dead. It had to be done. Just confirm that they're dead. So that we could have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Abner, you should go on America Singing Got Talent. Don't you mean American kids got singing? That's the one from 30 Rock. Yeah, good call, Abner Vengosh. U.S. has nothing to say about 10-year-old killed in drone strike. <laughs> Why would we have anything to say? What is there to say? Here, wait. I know what the U.S. could say about a 10-year-old killed in a drone strike. <laughs> there you go. There's your comment. <sighs> On June 9th, the U.S. drone fired on a vehicle in a remote province of Yemen and killed several militants, according to media reports. It soon emerged that among those who died was a young boy, a 10-year-old Abdulaziz, whose elder brother Saleh Hassan Huradyadan was believed to be the target of the strike. A McClatchy reporter recently confirmed the child's death with locals. Update, the London-based Bureau of Investigative Journalism today reported there was strong evidence it was a U.S. drone strike, but I cannot confirm this fact. It's the first prominent allegation of a civilian death since President Obama pledged in a major speech in May, quote, to facilitate transparency and debate about the U.S. war on al-Qaeda linked militants beyond Afghanistan. He also said, quote, there must, be, there must be near certainty that no civilians will be killed or injured in a strike. So what does the administration have to say in response to evidence that a child was killed? Nothing. Makes me sick. I guess that's all the killer robot stuff we have this week, so let's move on to hip-hop. Uh, one, two, one, two, uh. One, two, one, two. Oh, Sing it, Abner. There's bigger than hip hop. Hip hop. Hip hop. It's bigger than hip hop. Yes, Questlove was on Democracy Now! He's awesome. He had a whole long series of things to say about uh, his memoir, which is called Mo Meta Blues and Occupy and Stevie Wonder and The Cosby Show and a whole lot of stuff. I would love to play some audio, but again, it would take me forever to find the actual thing. Uh, let's see. This is him talking about um, 
being pulled over by the cops and racial profiling. Um, so then they talk about, yeah, okay, here we go. Uh, after the George, so Aaron Mate is one of the interviewers. After the George Zimmerman verdict last month, you wrote in a, po- a post that was widely circulated, quote, I don't know how to not internalize the overall message this whole Trayvon case has taught me. You ain't nothing. You ain't bleep. You ain't S. Quote, that's the lesson I took from this case. I guess I'm struggling to get at least 1% of this feeling back from all this protective numbness I've built around me to keep from feeling. What do you mean by protective numbness? So Questlove says this. You know, I think there's just a bit of your soul that just sort of melts away when things like this happen. I mean, first of all, you internalize it. Like, as I watch the case, I mean, I identify with Trayvon Martin. Like, I felt like, okay, that would have been me in that situation. I mean, there's definitely been times where I've been watching either a sporting event or the Grammys or any sort of television event, and I'd be the person that would run to the store to get something. Like, that could easily have been me. I live in hoodies. I opened a hoodie shop. I have a hoodie shop that sells nothing but hoodies. Like, I love hoodies because it gives me anonymity. Like, I get to go to the movies and no one bothers me. Um... Yeah, so I'm kind of Captain Obvious, he said, because he has got this huge fro, right? So when the verdict's handed down, you know, I'm just like, half of me, I instantly felt like, well, I knew that was going to happen, but then the other half of me was upset that I had just resigned to that fact. And, you know, because I was on an international flight, uh, I was in Holland the day the verdict was handed down, so that whole eight-hour trip on the plane, I was just like, oh, well, you know, nothing matters anymore, like, this really, life doesn't matter. You're guilty no matter what, and you just now have to figure out a way to make everyone feel safe and everyone feel comfortable, even if it's at the expense of your own soul. So, I mean, I mean, the whole thing is really good. Um, he talks about music. He talks about the roots. He talks about hip-hop and Occupy Wall Street and a million other things. You should totally check it out. I'll have stuff posted there in Democracy Now. I suppose I ought to play some hip-hop tracks, but we're running late. It's almost an hour. Uh, NPR had a story about hip-hop as four, at the age 40, uh, which isn't the best thing in the world, but they did have one decent paragraph in this story. Uh, It's no mystery why rap music has gradually lost its teeth and become more and more corporate. First, the fallout from the L.A. riots in spring 1992 led to Ice-T's cop killer controversy. That wasn't a rap song. Avner, tell him, I wish to point out Ice-T's band Body Count was a thrash metal group, not a rap group. And for them to lump Cop Killer into a story about hip-hop is absolutely absurd. That would be like taking Steven Tyler and making him the centerpiece of a story about rap music just because he did a version of Walk This Way with Run DMC. It's absolutely ludicrous. And they did not mention ludicrous in this story. Thank goodness, because ludicrous isn't really that important in the history of hip-hop, I must say. Thank you, Abner Vengosh. Um... Blah, 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 Time Warner boycott. Several conscious and controversial rappers were dropped or released from labels owned by Time Warner. Next came the signing of the Telecommunications Act in 1996, which made it possible for Clear Channel and MS Communications to buy up stations all across the country and create hot and power franchises across the country, all with nearly identical playlists regardless of region. During this time, the only remaining conscious groups were either on indie labels, i.e. Public Enemy, releasing their final albums on major labels, i.e. Poor Righteous Teachers and Brand Nubian, with the lone exception being Dead Prez, who signed Allowed Records in 1998 and didn't release their debut album until 2000. By the time Dead Prez released their debut LP, Let's Get Free, they were the only group making the kind of conscious rebel music that was common during rap's first golden era, 1986-1989. Now, that's amazing, because I never thought I'd hear Poor Righteous Teachers and Dead Prez mentioned in an NPR story. So good for them for mentioning them. Um, it would end up being their only album on a major label as the folding of Loud Records, coupled with the signing of the Patriot Act post-9-11, served as the final nail in the coffin for major label-conscious rap. All the remaining MCs that regularly do social commentary or are critical of those in power are making music independently since majors won't touch them and radio refuses to play them, i.e. Immortal Technique, Akir, Hassan Salam, Jaziri X, etc. Good for you, NPR, for giving a shout-out to Jaziri X and Dead Prez and um, Poor Regis Teachers. I, I still hate NPR with every fiber of my being, but that story was pretty Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting, cause the end of this near. But don't listen you can't function if you live in fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to Sing it, Avner Vengosh! All right, Stephen Fry uh, was born in 1957. He's an English actor, screenwriter, author, playwright, journalist, poet, comedian, television, and radio presenter, (sighs) film director, activist, and board member of Norwich City Football Club. Perhaps you better let me talk about people from the United Kingdom in the future, Piotrowski. You mangled that entire speech. Let me give it a whirl, shall I? Stephen Fry, born 1957, is an English actor, screenwriter, author, playwright, journalist, poet, comedian, television and radio presenter, film director, activist, and board member of Norwich City Football Club. 
Yes, thank you, Avner Vengosh. I appreciate that. He had a thing to say about how to be happy, and there's a, a, a picture file that's loading up here. Here he goes. I can't do a Stephen Fry impression. Avner, would you do me the honors of reading this quote? I'd be happy to. I almost wanted once to publish a self-help book saying How to Be Happy by Stephen Fry, 100% guaranteed success. And then people would buy this huge book, and it's all blank pages, and the first page would just say, Stop feeling sorry for yourself, and you will be happy. Self-pity will destroy relationships. It will destroy anything that's good. It will fulfill all the prophecies it makes and leave only itself. And it's so simple to imagine that one is hard done by, that things are unfair, and that one is unappreciated, and you would be happier if only this, that one is unlucky. All of those things, and some may well even be true, but to pity oneself as a result of them is doing oneself an enormous disservice. Thank you, Abner Vengosh, and thank you, Stephen Fry. That's it, people. Look, we almost made it in under an hour. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff that I've made. Shoutouts this week to everybody who sent me stuff, and Turtle502 for the Twitter love, and Jason for the hip-hop article from NPR. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I've got a lot of stuff i got to get done. I don't have time to sit here playing with the phone. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. i got a lot of stuff i got to get done. Thank you, Avner Vengosh. Thank you to my very special guest, Avner Vengosh, for being with me all week, all day, all hour. Oh, boy, I'm done with this show. Uh, thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. I'm going to try to do this a little more regularly. I can't promise nothing, but we'll give it a try. Uh, ESP at FBESP.org, or you can tweet me at Duke Scath. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again soon for another exciting episode of the Didactic Syncast. I'm Avna Vengosh. Good night. <laughs>